Whoa, whoa, whoa. We got to get these doggies. They're out of the pen. We got to get them back in the in pen. In the pen, in sure. In the pen. We got to get them over to the last podcast network, Country Jamboree, June 18th, 2022, at the Ryman Auditorium in Nashville, Tennessee. Come and check out all the shows that you love on the last podcast network. We'll be in front of you in our meat space, and we cannot wait to entertain you and have a great time. But for those of you that can't come in person, Go to momenthouse.com slash LPOTL and buy your live stream ticket. Yes, yes, you too can watch us perform our jangly country jamboree from the nudity of your couch. Absolutely fantastic. I hope you guys enjoy the show. Thank you so much for your support. And we are so excited to be at the OG Grand Old Opry. Yeah! Hail yourselves! There's no place to escape to. This is the last podcast. On the left. (laughs) That's when the cannibalism started. What was that? Can you be considered responsible for your actions if you are born looking like a rat? (laughs) Well, that's a good point. I don't think you can be. If you're born into it. Right, if you're born into the gay danger Woo. lifestyle, sure, because right? that's what these guys are. Right, they're yeah. born into it. They like it. All right, they, they've got they've got the it's nature and nurture in there. Well, no one knows who we're talking about yet, but sure. And by gay danger, you don't mean that they are in danger because they're gay. You mm-hmm. mean that they're just dangerous gay men. Oh yeah, oh, fantastic! Ah. I can't wait to get into this story. Welcome to the last podcast on the left, everyone. I am Ben, hanging out with Marcus and hanging out with Henry. Sure. Well, we are. <laughs> sure you are. Well, we are. Yeah, but uh, maybe we'd be a little bit more dangerous if we kissed. Yeah, buddy, that would light <laughs> the world on fire. Wouldn't it? That would really take down the internet. Didn't have that in my 2022 bingo card. You got to stop saying <laughs> it. All right, everyone. Today's topic, perhaps you've heard the names before, but to be honest, what's this all about? Leopold and Loeb. What's this all about? I don't like this catchphrase. What's either. this all about? I guess it's better than the bingo card catchphrase, but yeah. yes. People I like do the bingo, this all about. The people do the bingo card thing with without irony. Yeah, man. It's because they <laughs> misunderstood the assignment. We can't do this. All right. Here we go. Leopold and Loeb. Nathan Leopold and Richard Loeb were two wealthy teenagers who kidnapped and killed a 14-year-old boy in Chicago in 1924, infamously for the thrill that they allegedly derived both from the murder itself and from how they were supposed to feel if they'd gotten away with it. Yeah, whatever, though, but they weren't good enough. No, Mm -mm. definitely not. Now, after they were swiftly caught for what they believed was going to be the perfect crime, Leopold and Loeb's trial became one of the earliest nationally covered trials of the century and eventually became one of America's most enduring true crime stories. Everyone knows the perfect crime is running for local office, getting elected, running for larger office, getting elected, and then executing a bunch of innocent people. Perfect crime. (laughs) Perfect crime. It's called being a governor of Texas. See, people at the time saw the Leopold and Loeb case as a sign that society was crumbling under the weight of the jazz age. Yeah, it's it's jazz. It was jazz. This this entire episode and this entire series is all about how jazz 
is bad. Oh, that's <laughs> and awesome. It's functionally bad for society. Yeah. yeah, I just love the way that arts are always vilified in these mm-hmm. cases. Yeah, and it was the, the jazz that sounds like a bunch of cow, like cartoon cows farting their way through a hallway. <laughs> the... I love that big tuba. It's a St. Louis J. <laughs> and that's it. And then that was what supposed to call mass murder. My knees were my knees were shaking a little bit when you guys did that. And everybody knows you can't trust a big man around anyone. <laughs> All right. That sheriff told us. Is that I know that one sheriff yeah. who was very scared, who I'm very happy no longer has a badge. Yeah. Put that into context, please. Well, the 1920s were being seen by some as a time of newfound permissiveness, overeducation, and overindulgence when it came to kids. Well, when it comes it was to the overeducation, yeah. yeah. Don't, don't worry, 1924, we didn't do that. We got you. <laughs> we didn't make that mistake again. This is a story we've been looking trying to cover for a long time. This is mm-hmm. one of those has been on the back burner for a minute, but it's kind of I love these history episodes. He's historical true crime episodes mm-hmm. because you can really see how very little changes yeah. in society. Yeah, as it goes time and again, when people try pairing high-profile murder with out-of-control youth, Leopold and Loeb were just plain dickheads. They were anomalies, like Dylan Klebold and Eric Harris. Klebold and Harris, in fact, were in a way the elder millennial incarnations of Leopold and Loeb, which is probably part of the reason why we reference them so much on this show, where Dylan and Klebold and Eric Harris are Mm -hmm. our touchstones for true crime. So was Leopold and Loeb the true crime touchstones uh, for the early 20th century, for the first half half of the 20th century, really. Also, we'll be selling our new product called Touchstones, and they will be in the shape of all three of our testicles. I, I, I didn't know about the new merch. Yeah, it's new. But I love the rollout. Yeah. But perhaps part of what made the Leopold and Loeb case such an enduring tale for almost a century now is the sexual element mm. of the case. <laughs> Although the murder they committed was not sexual in nature at all. Okay, good. Rather, Leopold and Loeb were sexually involved with one another, although it would be a stretch to call their relationship romantic. Yeah. The true nature of their affair was far more bizarre than simple love and far more sociopathic. Maybe more honest than love. Could be. Leopold and Loeb. (laughs) In a way, they they had an inner agreement. At least both psychopaths were on the same page. I mean, their last names kind of go together nice. It's a little romantic sounding. Leopold and Loeb. You actually, that might be one of those things you stumbled upon, which I do think that there's things to be, names, names that catch on, branding. There's something about that that actually does work for Mm -hmm. things like this and for people, because maybe it's one of the explanations of why did these two fairly not a very, they're very dissimilar. I'm just right. How do they get together? If it was Gorski and Schmutter. It wouldn't be the same story. No, they'd be running a law firm in southern Wisconsin. (laughs) Exactly. And having sex with each other. Oh, yeah. Now, to use the parlance of their time, the 1920s, Leopold and Loeb's relationship was more about the act of what they called, quote unquote, browning, which is a fairly self-explanatory term as far as I'm concerned. How so? It's browning. What between two gay men? It sounds like two men shitting in a bowl and mixing (laughs) it up together as a team, or then applying said browning to themselves to achieve empathy for other races. Uh Well, I don't know about all that. I'm just going to assume anal sex. Yeah, it's it's anal sex. It's simple anal sex. It's browning. Yes, anal sex. Oh. Or at least it was more about browning for Richard Loeb, who seemed to be the browner in this situation. Yes, and and Leopold was the brown-ish. All right. <laughs> he was the brownie. 
Yeah, he was the brownie, yeah, for Nathan Leopold, who actually, in that time, he would not have been called a brownie. He would have been called in his community a gonsel, or perhaps a muzzler. Uh, Are those all slang? Yeah, this is, this is all slang. This is, I'm not making this shit up at all. This is 1920 slang. Browning is anal se- code for anal sex. A gonsal is code for bottom. Muzzler is one who uh, likes uh, going down on guys, specifically guys who are, quote unquote, not gay. Whoa. Uh, and yeah, there's a whole lot going on at the time. Fantastic. I love slang. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, but for Nathan Leopold, the relationship had a degree of emotionality to the detriment of both young men. Oh. But outside of the sexual nature of their relationship, what defined Leopold and Loeb more than anything else in the mind of the American public at the time, and what made the murder they committed such a huge story, was the fact that Leopold, Loeb, and their victims were all wealthy Chicagoans of high status. I think that's part of the reason why we're so fascinated with these cases. Because especially in America, I think we have this false equivocation that if you are rich... You will not get any of the quote unquote nurture or any of the thing like you can't possibly be guilty of these types of crimes. But then yeah. if you look at somebody like Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold that also came from fairly like having a stable home, upper and, middle, class, upper middle sure. class, well taken care of, quote unquote, no worries. Like it's the same thing. Why do these guys become little fucking monsters? Yeah, right. But these guys were way, way, way beyond upper middle class. I mean, the oh, Leopold yes. family was worth close to, in today's cash, they were worth close to $100 million. Woo! Yeah, the victim's family was worth close to $100 million. The Loeb family, they were worth almost $200 million in today's money. I can't even believe he's hanging out with those peasants. <laughs> disgusting. He's got double their money. Oh, yeah. Come on, yeah. Loeb. Therefore, rich victim plus rich perpetrators plus a good amount of browning equals one of the most infamous true crime stories in not only American, but world history. Okay. And there's something about their vibe, too. It's the same oh, thing. Yeah. It's like, it's it's fucked up. It's the way they look. They are two characters within true crime of themselves. You mm-hmm. have Leopold, who's got the fucking, he's the gross one. And then you got the other one who's the handsome one. And then the leader and follower. It's, it's weird how yeah. this is the proto look at true crime couples that'll happen yeah. again and again and again. Question, was this around Chicago? Was this around the World's Fair? Is this no, a similar this is about six. This is like 60 years after the World's Fair. Not everything before 2000 in Chicago took place at the World's Fair. <laughs> when did Not 60, Michael actually, jo- 40 when years, is Jordan? 40 years. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's been Jordan. a long time. Yeah. That's about 60 years later. Fantastic. <laughs> Fantastic question, Ben. It's just all you have in your mind about Chicago is like the Blues Brothers, yes. Deep Dish Pizza, yes. and the World's Fair. Yes. And that's all you know. <laughs> that's it. Yep. But before we get to Leopold and Loeb, let's acknowledge our source. Today, we've got, for the thrill of it, Leopold, Loeb, and the murder that shocked Jazz Age Chicago by Simon Bates. I'm going to kill my fucking family. This music's so good. (laughs) I do love some good jazz. I can see myself crunching some peanuts, drinking a beer. Yeah, That's country music. It's jazz, too. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, if you watch the country music documentary by Ken Burns, there, Whit Marsalis does make a lot of comparisons between the two, and yes, I think he, he's correct. Yes, he does. And as you can see here, it's incredible how the violins, they are strummed. And in, in another way, wasn't Bebop one of the most fascinating periods of music history? 
<laughs> that was a fantastic documentary. <laughs> Nathan Leopold and Richard Loeb were two polar opposite personalities. One was popular, good-looking, and sociable, while the other was sour-faced, openly narcissistic, and generally unpleasant to be around in just about every way possible. Two types of dudes that exist, and that's oh, it. Okay. <laughs> the unpleasant one was Nathan Leopold, and it is with him that we will begin our series. Nathan Leopold Jr. was a third-generation American whose grandfather had emigrated from Germany to northern Michigan in 1846, where he started a shipping business providing provisions to mining towns. Man, it really was like they made up whole industries back then. Yeah, and man. people still do that. It's weird how you look at it because I don't know anything about business, like at all, like in any way, shape. Well, it's a little scary for Marcus and I to hear. But it's weird <laughs> that you can look at, like, he was doing the mining thing, right? And he's just like, I got to do something with all these rocks. And it was before he even had ships to like move the rocks. They could build all of this no, stuff. No, provisions for mining towns. He provided provisions. Food. Food. It's, it's just weird how like business starts with the man with the shovel and he goes and he goes ding, ding, ding. And then someone shows up and be like, you might need a barrel for this. And also that wow. guy's the millionaire. And then the guy with the ding, 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 he makes nothing. He dies of black lung. No one ever hears, no one knows his name. I'm just happy you're taking my role on the show for once. What? Is this around the World's Fair? Well, by the dawn of the 20th century, some 50 years later, the Leopold family were among the wealthiest in all of Chicago. But Nathan Leopold Jr. was the disappointing third child of Nathan Leopold Sr. My disappointed, Daddy. I'm the son you've always wanted. Yeah, that's horrifying. Yeah, yeah. this neck is not perfect. I have an aerodynamic face. <laughs> I slid right out of the vagina. No marks left behind. Yeah, that's because you're the you're the third one. Um this is why no child should ever get any money from their grandparents or parents, dare I say. Everybody should have to work. Yeah. Yeah. They should work for their grandparents in a, a stockyard. Absolutely. <laughs> well, from an early age, Nathan Leopold was the target of, quote, relentless, unforgiving bullies. Partly this was because he was shy and studious. And partly it was because he was always tiny. He never got above five foot three, 110 pounds. Wow. But mostly, Nathan caught shit because Nathan's governess would escort him home from school day after day. Leopold looks like the character from the old cartoon Recess. Mm. Do you know what I'm talking about? There's a no. little rat face dude. Let me look this up. Recess. Let me look this up. Hold yeah, on look it up. Look it up so the, the um, audience can see it. No, I'm looking it up. <laughs> I'm looking it up. Oh, yes. He looks like... He looks like the character Randall Weems, Weems from, Recess. from Recess, right? Hmm. And he's got this, like, he, there's something about him where he is immediately unlikable. Sure. Yeah. In any way, he is a, nobody likes him. Like, he shows up, people already have got a read on him. Being like, he's a weird nerd. He is already <laughs> very mean, right? Well, he's very the, cutting with his words. He's one of those kids when the kid who is already getting bullied at school sees him, he's like, yes. Yes. I yes. don't think I'm going to get bullied anymore. I think I can actually bully that kid. Sometimes the bullies are correct. And then it, <laughs> it does not. I mean, maybe not, though, because it seems like they created a murderer. No, sure, sure, yeah. sure. But, they, but he was the follow-along one, right? We'll get to that. Okay. But, he kept getting picked up by his nanny, right? Yeah. Well, well, the position of governess, it's not necessarily a nanny. 
It's somewhere in between. It doesn't really exist anymore. But back in Victorian times, a governess acted as something between a nanny and a tutor. It's kind of in between. A governess would instruct the children of the wealthy in both fundamentals, you know, the three R's, and they'd also teach them drawing. They'd teach them, they'd teach them how to play the piano. They'd teach them how to dance. They'd teach them in all of the ways of deportment and comfortment. Perhaps they'd teach them how to milk. Because I'll tell you one thing, when I think of a governess, I think of a big old butt, big old boobies. Yeah, I mean, actually, I, just, hey, I, I need to learn how to bathe. And then she's like, oh, again. These are I all, this yes, is your own indeed. research. Yeah. This is, and I really, I want to say thank you so much to what Kissel has brought to the governess research mm. part of today's episode. He's been talking about it. He said he researched governesses all oh, night. Absolutely. <laughs> actually, I do kind of want to, I do kind of want to go home and type in governess to my uh, my documentary website that has Absolutely. all of my favorite documentaries and see what comes up. Victorian it's all, governess. It's all young son from home needs milking. <laughs> young son home from college needs milking. That's like well, all it is. I was just trying to buy a hamster and you should have seen the site it brought me to. <laughs> well, a governess's job was different for ladies than it was for men. Uh, with ladies, a governess was there to give them the skills to attract a suitor. In a crowded marriage market, you know, like maybe one girl's like Lady Mary knows how to play the piano, but Lady Edith doesn't know how to play the piano. And Lady Edith is not anywhere near as charming as Lady Mary. So Lady Mary has the advantage and her governess, therefore, wins the game. If you mm. want a proper husband, the first thing you'll have to do is learn how to speak on Elden Ring for almost three hours at a time. <laughs> and then, oh, you must have a pliable, pliable face. Yeah. <laughs> oh, we're just going to have to... I'm going to recommend, and I don't mean this is an insult to you, my uh, sweet, sweet uh, young charge. Um, uh, we're going to have to kill you and start again. Uh, we knew one of you. Uh, <laughs> well, a governess, because of this, a governess usually stayed with a girl well into her teenage years. You know, not always, but, you know, there, there was definitely a cutoff point. But hopefully, you know, the girl gets pawned away by 16, 17. You don't got to worry about her no more. The governess moves on to the next girl. Well, because hmm. then they raise it up to marrying age and then you hand it to a new property owner, her new husband. Yeah, or yeah, or you hand her over to a lady's maid. Goes from governess to lady's maid. I've been watching a lot of Downton Abbey. I know how this shit works out. And I know it's sexist against women, but honestly, I would love this. If you just had <laughs> oh, raised no. me up with a governor, like a big man who like taught me about like lifting weights and like mm -hmm. doing like getting in there, looking like Joe Rogan at 14 years old, you know what I mean? Like shaved head, like little fucking four feet wide, like, you know, four feet tall, like a square. But at the same time, you I just raised know. me up until you gave me to a fucking mommy wife. That's what Ghislaine <laughs> Maxwell's in jail for right now. I know. I but don't <laughs> think that this is a very healthy form of love. But I'm just saying if you did it opposite for a willing boy, you'd be awesome. Yeah, true. But with a boy, speaking of which, here's what they did with a boy. All with right. a boy, a governess, usually out the door by the time the kid turned eight years old. It was weird for a governess to be there past the age of eight because at the age of eight, that's when the boy is sent to school. They've been prepared for school this whole time. They get sent to a boy's school. But when it came to Nathan, his governess was there, large and in charge, until Leopold went to college. He was purposely mm. infantilized, Nathan yeah. Leopold, and it never really escaped him. He's mm. always was kind of like, that's how I view him as truly an ever-present evil little boy, where yeah. he really could not escape this, this kind of like, he was just, he was mommy too hard. Yeah, because you know how they say that like some mm. children are just naturally sociopathic and then they eventually learn 
emotions, you know, yes. and there's and Nathan Leopold was infantilized where he was just a sociopathic child and just continued to be a sociopathic child where he really couldn't figure he couldn't figure out the difference between fantasy and reality. He never put himself in the real world. Okay. But his governess's name was Mathilda Wants. She was nicknamed Sweetie. And by reports, she was an attractive. Okay, Ben, I'm I'm about yeah, to fucking bone. But Ben, I'm about to bone you up, bro. I ain't bone even fucking me. lying here. I ain't <laughs> fucking Mathilda, lying. Mathilda wants her feet <laughs> rubbed again. Mathilda wants her feet rubbed again. This is unironically one of the hotter descriptions in true crime. Is this woman? <laughs> Except for the molesting. Yes. Obviously. Well, okay. no, I mean, let's we'll not give away that. the game just yet. <laughs> I'm sorry. But Mathilda wants, aka Sweetie was an attractive, strong-willed German immigrant with a thick accent and a flirtatious manner. Oh. She's got a lap for Steins. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so flirtatious was she, in fact, that she allegedly had sex with Nathan's older brother when he was 17, and she had sex with Nathan himself when he was just 12. It's a little young, I'm going to say that. It's, it's a little young. And also, Nathan was gay. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, indeed, it's rumor. <sighs> it is rumor that, that she, he was gay. Oh, that well, she. Oh, that no. That okay. That she slept with him. That's what he yeah, molested. 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 Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It was a. Mm. Uh, it was a rumor. But still, at the same time, she was real close. Uh, yeah. Real close with him. And uh, for Nathan's older brother, seventeen at the time period. If you add a inflation since the nineteen twenties, he was forty-five years old, oh. <laughs> and he really needed to be working. He shouldn't uh. have been having sex with his nanny. Yeah. But since Nathan's mother was sickly and bedridden, his father too occupied with the family business, and his brothers completely uninterested in Nathan's life, hmm. Nathan's only constant was his oversexed, child-molesting governess. Yeah, and that's when I come and I play with your little Frankfurter. Oh, <laughs> you want me to do it? I'm not trying to be too obvious about it, but I'm just so horny for child. I thought child. it was going to be a lot more fun than this, man. <laughs> yeah, this is... I think, you know, because you yeah. decided to sexualize me. No, You're I didn't. Wolf. Look no, at I that big man. German mistress. Oh, I want to sleep with so her. I'm a full-grown man. <laughs> but guess what? No, I save her for children. That's horrible. <laughs> yeah, because you drove me to it. I did. I'm your a kid. sexualization of no. your eyeballs. I didn't do that. <laughs> now, Nathan had been known at the Harvard School for Boys as an eccentric loner. But surprisingly, what finally endeared him to the other kids was his interest in ornithology, particularly his collection of stuffed birds that he'd killed himself. This oh. is the thing is that he really found himself in this bird club. And I don't yeah. know why that made him cool. But there it was did. something about it. Like there, during this well, time, he period, had the most stuffed birds and he was the best at finding the birds and killing the birds and then saying, hey, look, here's this bird that you can look at up close. You I got a grackle. Check out my see, grackle. See my right. grackle? I crucified him. He's forever <laughs> petrified. In mid-flight. I mean, it's something. It's cool. At least he's not just the shy, nerdy kid. At this point, at least he has some kind of arts and crafts background. Yes, I freeze things that are free. Cool. I break yeah. their spines and I put some in the little cages for heaven. You know what, buddy? At least you have a personality now. Yeah. yeah. And you know, man, I don't see any much of a di Well, okay, there's some difference, but there's not much of a difference between Nathan Leopold's stuffed bird collection and Jeffrey Dahmer's roadkill shack. Like, it's the same fucking thing. It's the same concept, at least. I mean, the method of storage is different, and Jeffrey Dahmer's definitely smelled much worse, but mm. hey, it's a difference between upper and middle class sensibilities. It seemed like a respectable hobby at the time period, this idea of, I don't know about the killing them and stuffing them. Like, it does seem to be like, I thought ornithology was all about, like, 
watching them. I thought ornithology was all about just like knowing a lot about popcorn kernels. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to pa- I'm trying to backwardsly I'm trying to figure out how to put that back together. I think I it's, Orville I think it's Reckenbacher. Or, it's, oh yeah, that definitely yeah. starts with Orville, Orville. Reckenbacher. There's something with that, but or. it's not even the, it's it, Orville. <laughs> I don't know. I don't think he's had a stroke. I'm no, I don't I'll stroke. take him to the hospital. No, no, I don't want to go to the hospital. I'm gonna. I'm not going to the hospital. I'm just gonna die in bed. All right, great. Well, I mean, going back to ornithology, uh, it's more of the Teddy Roosevelt style of conservation, oh. where you go out, you kill it, you stuff it, and <laughs> Teddy Roosevelt had a high voice. He did. Yes. Yes. It's unique. No. Well, the thing about Nathan Leopold is that he was at the very least book smart. And by oh. the age of 15, he'd earned enough credits to skip his senior year. So many that and he attended the fucking University of Chicago at 15 years of age. Oh, God, that's also a nightmare. That's way too young for college. Yep. And that's where he met another kid who'd also been smart enough to skip ahead. That kid was Nathan's future partner in murder, Richard Loeb. Now, while the Leopold family was amongst the richest in Chicago, the Loeb's were nearing the status of Chicago royalty. Richard's father was the vice president of Sears Roebuck, which was one of America's first retail giants and the Sears behind Sears Tower in Chicago. Wow. Yeah, they like big things. It's sad. Sears is all gone now. There's a couple of Sears still out there. I looked it up. There's a couple. I mean, it was a real bad idea for them to buy Kmart in the early 2000s. It was. But I love those huge bras they got there. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I remember that. But since Richard Loeb's father effectively ran Sears Roebuck, and since Richard Loeb's mother didn't particularly care for child rearing, Loeb's upbringing was also entrusted to his governess. Although Loeb's governess negatively influenced Richard in an entirely different way. It's almost like Richard's parents, the only hear what they want to. Uh oh. <laughs> you like that? Lisa. I like it. <laughs> I love Lisa Loeb. Yeah. Well, instead of molesting him, Richard's governess, named Emily, put enormous amounts of pressure on Richard Loeb to be the best. You got to be the best. You always got to study. You got to read as much as possible. Well, that's a hell of a lot better than the other option. Yeah, sucking his dick. But it instilled in Richard this weird sense of superiority that I suppose he felt was necessary to measure up to his governess's standards. It's odd, but it's there. And it's, I mean, it's sociopathy mixed with these kind of high standards where she's like, you're the best. Why aren't you being the best? Why aren't you acting like the best? You got to be the best in order to fucking beat the rest of these rich assholes. Well, I think Leopold getting getting molested by the by the nanny actually falls outside of the fringe. Well, these, this sounds like way more normal rich kid driving behavior. Just yeah. Ric Flair. She's watching him sit around. Like, she's doing the thing where I can kind of see, you know, you take her perspective. You see this rich kid hanging around you know he's going to take over one of the biggest department store like a, a massive family lineage huge old money right. he's going to take on this thing and yeah man if he's sitting around playing jacks or listening to trombo i don't know what kids <laughs> in the 1910s did for fun but uh, something like, like that you'd be like no man you should be reading books yeah you need to work now because yeah. eventually you're going to sit in an office and mostly you're going to be like yeah, we need more suspenders. That's what yes. your whole life is going to be. You're going to sit behind a, f- a giant mahogany desk and go yeah. like, yeah, 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 more suspenders. Let's gloves. Now we get up the gloves. Less suspenders. <laughs> That's business. You know, at one point, Sears Roebuck was 1% of America's entire economy. 
Damn. Now yeah. look at those statistics. But if you want something that's even more disturbing, Walmart is now 2.4% of America's entire economy. Now look at those statistics. Do you remember when Walmart came out with that that commercial series that was being like, it's really tough for the small business owner. It is. Yeah. I saw the yeah. CEO of Walmart crying on CNBC because he can't compete with Amazon. And it was so sweet. The tears. Uh, I licked the tears yeah, on my Yeah, I licked those sweet, sweet, big fucking fat Walmart tears. Oh. Yeah, and he was lying because Walmart's income is twice that of Amazon. Amazon. So fuck. Anyway, anyway, I oh, looked at right. the department whoa, stores. Whoa. I looked at the department stores for a fair amount yesterday. I don't know why I got to that hole, but I was curious. Okay. But regardless of the origin, Richard's own inflated sense of self worth soon collided with an interest in true crime stories. So Marcus, and hey, hey, detective listen, you're, mysteries. You're getting into this, but my thing is. Why true crime now? Why true crime now? <laughs> Why true crime now? I mean, it is a it's a question that I've been asking myself for the last five to seven to ten to to to, to twelve 20 to thirty to twenty 12, to thirty to forty to 40, 60, maybe a hundred years four hundred years, years, years. Why yeah. true crime now? Why, Why true, true crime, crime now? now? Yeah, but before long, Loeb was identifying more with the Moriarty's of the world than the <gasps> Sherlock's. Mm. Loeb came to believe that criminals were quote not in the common run of humanity. And just like any other unimaginative killer who wants to take a shortcut to what he thinks is greatness, Lowe began to think that the way to set himself apart from the common run mm. was to become a master criminal. Now, this is, he was around the ages 15, <laughs> 16 years old when no, he started... Before, yeah, even before that, 13, 14. He was rolling up. Yeah, like these are childish fantasies, obviously. Yeah, Like this idea course. that if you are... if. I get it. It does seem to be glamorous to a young person, the attention that one gets from being a criminal. But yeah. his fantasy really involved the, it's really the him versus the world thing. It's the idea that nobody can control me. I am this incredible, crystalline, unique intelligence right. that can manipulate people. But then there's also a fetishizing of the bring down of the mm -hmm. of getting arrested because he's talking about like it's his real fantasy is the oh, him beaten we'll, up by guards <laughs> we'll get into that yeah, yeah. we'll okay. get into his real fantasy or not his real fantasy but the other side of his fantasy there are definitely two sides to richard loeb's fucking boner coin sounds like a bit of a persecution complex perhaps. very much so yeah well, Loeb's supposed superiority was only emboldened by both his popularity and the fact that he graduated from high school when he was just 14. Yeah, not only I graduated from high school, but I can also tittle and wink. Whoa! <laughs> I can do about. You can tiddly and wink? I guess what? I can sing your favorite song. It's easy for me to do. I know how to do jazz with my mouth. All right. Let's <laughs> that is my favorite song. My knees are crackling. I don't even need a phonograph. Wow. But according to Loeb, when he went off to college at the University of Chicago and his governess was let go, something, quote unquote, broke loose. Uh -oh. And not too long after, Richard Loeb met Nathan Leopold. Now, on the surface, it would seem like these two teenagers wouldn't have anything in common. Richard Loeb was sociable, charming and funny, while Nathan was disdainful, arrogant and pompous. 
One fellow student, the very wealthy-sounding Arnold Marmont, said that Nathan... It's Arnold Marmont! (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I actually don't know if Arnold Marmont sounds very wealthy. That's why my name is Arnold Marmont! (laughs) Okay. Well, he said that Nathan would find a way to monopolize any conversation no matter what was being talked about, because Nathan thought he was mentally superior to everyone. Therefore, his opinions were the only valuable ones that should be heard. It sounds like he sounds like he believes that he's a man right. that should be over everyone else. He sounds like Indeed. one of those comedians that hang out at the uh, in the uh, booth at the comedy cellar. Oh yeah, yeah you better be careful because you'll get razzed. <laughs> and <laughs> if you order chicken tenders, they will call you a child molester. They razz. They razz you. They razz you. Wow. But perhaps it was this confidence in his own mental abilities that attracted Richard Loeb to Nathan Leopold. Hmm. Additionally, it didn't hurt that both boys had come to college at 14 years. Well, okay, one of them was 14. Loeb was Loeb was 14. Leopold was 15. But either way you slice it, this was long before they had the maturity to handle college. Right. In this, they're similar to the Unabomber, Ted Kaczynski, who went to Harvard at 14. It doesn't seem to really help anybody. No. No. To go... To college this early. It seems really bad. Well, it seems like just because you're book smart doesn't mean your brain's all there yet socially. So just, I don't know, pump the brakes, enjoy high school. I really do think that I probably should have listened to my high school philosophy teacher and have moved to New York when I was 18 to like be an actor or whatever. But Mm -hmm. honestly, it was nice to go to college because that's how I made my friends. Exactly. And I grew up a little bit before going to just get murdered and left in the streets of New York City at 18 years old. Like, how's everybody? How's everybody doing? Like, exactly. Off yeah. of the train, yeah. Yeah, that's the thing. If you hadn't have gone to college, you wouldn't be doing this show right now. The show wouldn't exist, and you may have ended up back in Orlando in that Universal Blues Studios Brothers Blues Studio. Brothers. That would have been <laughs> cool. I got that job. I was supposed to be Juliet Jake. Oh. What if I'd be like on Andrew Cuomo's staff? <laughs> you think that's where I'd be? Yeah, that's possible. You have a Machiavellian-like sensibility. Yeah. But instead of finding themselves being destroyed by an MK Ultra experiment like Ted Kaczynski was, Leopold and Loeb each found a sociopath of a like mind. I like you. You can. Can you also do jazz music with your mouth? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I can. <laughs> wow. My knees are crackling now. I feel like we're at a concert. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> Well, one definite interest that the boys shared was that Nathan was gay and Richard was at the very least bisexual. One could argue, though, that Richard Loeb wasn't really much of anything when it came to sex and love. He later claimed to be indifferent to sex, marking it down as something that he could easily get along without. Conversely, it also wasn't a big deal to do it with either a man or a woman. So when Nathan Leopold pressed Richard Loeb for sex, Richard figured... Why refuse if it mattered so little one way or the other? That's how you feel about food, Marcus. Yeah, seriously. Wow. Yeah, I also think, you know, like prior to 18, you know, if everybody's on board, right? What, you want to finish your thought? I don't know. (laughs) Absolutely. I actually don't know what my thought was. Fantastic. I mean, amongst the wealthy, you know, especially amongst the English, uh, having a little bit of a dalliance at the boys' school was seen as no big deal. Yeah, sometimes you got to do an upside down kiss. All Mm -hmm. right. You're with your best friends. Yeah. That's what a lot of friends do. <laughs> and so, starting in 1920, 
Leopold and Loeb started fooling around on the regular, and by spring of 1921, Nathan Leopold had fallen in a kind of love with Richard Loeb and was willing to do just about anything Richard wanted. Well, I think Richard Richard Loeb also got really obsessed with the idea of doing anything that was anti-society or anti that was regular at the quote-unquote regular at the time. So I feel yeah. like there's a little bit of him, his drive, like Leopold was like truly falling in love with Richard, right? Like he was as, sort of in so far as much as he could fall. He in could love. fall in love, but I do think it's mostly just because it's another way to tell polite society to go fuck yourself, being yeah. like, "And I'm gay." Yeah. All right, there you uh, go. Well, I would argue with that because when the very first time that Richard Loeb was faced with that was faced with like, "Hey, you got to stop being gay, or else you're going to be ostracized," he fucking folded. And oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. again, he has no strong attachment to anything. Yeah, that's true. But it is important to note that Nathan Leopold was by no means forced to do anything, nor could it be said that Leopold was spellbound by a stronger personality. Instead, both teenagers had rich and intricate fantasy lives that locked together perfectly to create a sociopathic feedback loop that resulted in murder. This they found a, their person. Yeah, sure. I found my slit for my slot. <laughs> oh, isn't that nice? That's their love language. Yep. We, I also wonder if they like. Yeah, it's it's weird because you know their crime in many ways reminds me of a de more than anything else. Because a yeah. Is that like a fondue type thing? That's or? what we covered this. We covered this before. It's the idea of like a two-person cult. Oh uh, yeah, like, but like we did with the sisters, the Erickson sisters. Yes, right. We're right. like they. They're it really. The, the key is the fantasy life lining up yeah, because right. th there's something about being able to say out loud to somebody else, I have these dark thoughts. And the other person being like, not only do I have dark thoughts, but I want to be the Lord of dark thoughts. Like mm. I want to be, I want to make dark, dark shit. I want to be a criminal. I want to be a professional criminal. And yeah. you want to suck a criminal's dick. That's incredible. Like <laughs> it really perfect. works out. We're like, now we're going to hang out and they then they're collective together ruminating about doing shit together. Like yeah. starting to escalate, like really trying to say fuck you to society. It, it weird. I feel like in a way it's almost like their fantasy world became more real than their reality. Yeah. You complete me. No. And we do, don't we, Kissel? Yes, you do. Because we each a perfect complimentary spice. Marcus has the dirt. Yeah. Kissel um, shits when as soon as he comes into the studio. Yep. <laughs> and me, I'm always exactly about six minutes late just to show you I'm easygoing. Absolutely. <laughs> French. Rise from your grave. A roast as dark as the night, perfect for fueling the cryptid research and mad ravings required for your podcasting. Don't mind the red eyes. He's just trying to warn you of the bridge. The bridge. Finally, from the caffeine-addled brains of Spring Hill Jack Coffee and last podcast on the left, we bring you Mothman's Red Eye Blend. Yes, delicious Panama beans. Go to lastpodcastmerch.com to order yours today. <laughs> now, Richard didn't immediately rocket towards murder when he broke loose, as he put it. Richard Loeb's climb towards the worst crime in existence, child murder, started in the pettiest of ways. At the age of 15, Richard Loeb devised a system for cheating at cards that required Nathan Leopold as a partner. He has a king. Yeah. <laughs> wow, what a great system. He has a, he has a king there. I can see it. This is a fan. We're so smart. Wink. 
Wow. <laughs> well, this was not to make money because both Leopold and Loeb received generous allowances. Instead, this was just for the thrill of successfully fooling their friends and most importantly, doing it without getting caught. If I touch the lamp, he has a jack. Fantastic. <laughs> You're saying it in front of him. This is so smart. See, while some criminals commit crimes specifically for the attention, Leopold and Loeb wanted no attention whatsoever because notoriety was for peasants. Oh. Well, they, well he liked their own inner circle knowing it. Yeah. Right. Well, I mean, then that inner circle being just those two. But after all, if they were truly as superior as they believed themselves to be, then it follows that the opinions of others wouldn't matter at all. Therefore, the only people they had to impress was themselves. And at the very least, you got to give them credit for sticking to their principles, no matter how idiotic they might be. Might okay. be. In, would it be inappropriate to call them the Romy and Michelle of true crime? <laughs> well, I'm not quite sure, although that was a very funny film. Yeah. Very, very funny. Also, the inner circle. Fantastic sexual position. <laughs> God, this this governess work he did. Yeah, and I wow. saw he brought a big yeah. vanilla folder. I and like I went to open it and it was stuck together. Yeah. I, was like, I don't even know how he gets to his research material. I know it's pretty unbelievable. But really, the thrill of committing crimes and escaping detection was more Richard Loeb's thing. For Nathan Leopold's part, while he did certainly enjoy making Richard happy, the crimes themselves didn't give him the same jolt that they gave Loeb. Hmm. To put it into domestic terms, Crime was Richard's hobby, his passion, and Nathan was simply going along with an activity that he kind of sort of enjoyed so as to make his new romantic conquest happy, to have something to share. Okay. We well, do it's, this always, it's a bad idea in any, in any relationship. If you don't love Renaissance fairs, don't pretend like you love Renaissance fairs in the first three months of your relationship because six months later or a couple of years later when you're, you're sick of Renaissance fair fairs. Now, yeah, 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 you're well, a Renaissance fair person and it's going gonna, it's gonna to cause a big fracture. Seems highly specific. But also, if 60% of you can handle the Ren fair and you know your partner loves it, well, then you have a little be, fun with the Ren fair. That's, that's called your secret, like, like Ren fairs, and you don't want to let anybody else know. If you're at 60% into Ren fairs, Ren fairs are, they can be divisive. They yeah. sound like a bunch of fun. You eat a bunch of turkey legs, you uh, drink some mead. Again, you could be nudged into Ren Fairs. Yeah. I adore Ren Fairs. We, Ren have a, we, have a, we have a plan to go to Ren Fairs later on this summer. We're, no. we're very much looking forward to it. Okay. But something like this, it's really about, they wanted the audience. And then it's about their inner audience. It really yeah. is about that. It's about the mm. hangout, man. That's mm. why Leopold's there. It's about the fucking brown. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, for example, as far as how Leopold went along with Loeb's crimes, on nights when Richard would have too much to drink, Nathan would follow Richard's lead and park his car on a deserted street someplace close to campus. Then Richard would throw bricks through car windows and run back to Nathan, who would quickly speed away. <laughs> did you see what I did? <laughs> did you see what I just yeah, did? Yeah, but it was pretty sweet. Uh, it was so naughty what I just did. Uh, it was uh, pretty naughty, dude. Is uh. it time to maybe now that we're driving around, we could take a quick exit? To Brown Town. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Have fun with it. All right. Well, just give me 15 minutes, okay? Wow. Because I was just kind of enjoying the glow of smashing all these windows. <laughs> yeah, of course. It's something to do as a teen. You know, this ain't the craziest behavior from a couple no. of 15-year-old kids. But you know? to them, but, it was the most exciting, most dark, dangerous shit in the yeah. world. Maybe they were just bored. Yeah, I mean, it's part of it. I mean, that's the, that's kind of my point, is that from brick throwing, you know, Leopold and Loeb graduated to car theft or really joyriding. That escalated to smashing storefront windows, which then escalated further to arson. And again, uh, between the three of us, we probably committed all of these crimes as teenagers. If I yeah. had to guess, I know I'm certainly the ar arsonist here. I know that. I'll smash a window. 
Wow, really, Ben? Yeah. I pegged you as the joyrider, and Henry is the vandal. I'm the joyrider. You can do both. That's that's interchangeable. I think the yeah. main crime is the one that you admitted to, Marcus. Which is <laughs> yeah, that is a crime but, that you but said. I, we said I, you but, said fun things to us because you, you can said, just call Safe Flight and be like, "The kids got into my car again." But you know, yeah. with yours, like my house is burned down. Yeah, my, you've killed. I me, never man. burned down a house. I don't know why you. But when it, and you know what? I got caught for my arson, so I'm not. I'm not admitting to a crime uh, that they're still searching. So you, you're uh, for illegal suspects. arson. Oh yeah, but what about the old McClune man's house? No, huh? I didn't. Old I man did McClune. I never burned down anyone's house. Never. Yeah. Never, never, he never did it. Dude, he's looking up and to the left oh, when he says left, it. Yeah. No, so no, I don't I'm, looking, he's... I'm looking straight into this fucking Zoom camera. I am yeah, looking straight at both of you. Yeah, but now you're really focused on looking yeah, yeah. Now it seems <laughs> to be a performative like, act. No. Right. Never burn down any houses. Fantastic. But for us, these crimes were about boredom. You know, I set that dumpster on fire because I was bored. You know, you guys threw bricks through windows because you were bored. I didn't For throw Leopold. bricks through window. We we did do the thing where you would. Oh well, okay, let's move on. I yeah. killed Ronnie <laughs> McColty because he tried to. Uh, I, I had to kill Ronnie McColty because he tried to tell my teacher that I was going to cheat on the uh, six months exam yeah. uh, in algebra one, and he had to go. So that's yeah. murder. Okay. No, yeah. no, no, no. It's getting an obstacle out of the way. That's <laughs> Well, for Leap Alden Loeb, these crimes were feeding dark fantasies. And with each crime the pair committed without capture, the more intricate Richard's fantasy life in particular became. Richard Loeb began to think of himself as a master criminal whose ingenuity and cleverness could conceivably command the respect of Chicago's criminal underworld. <laughs> if you ever have to ask the question to yourself, you're like, do you think Al Capone would like me? I don't think that he would. No, this is like, you know, getting a fucking bunt to first base in Little League and expecting a congratulations call from King Griffey Jr. Well, it's not going to happen. you one of those kids with cancer, <laughs> then you get it. Then King Griffey Jr. called you all the fucking time there was just a fantastic <laughs> story about a child with cancer and he did request a home run be hit and indeed a home run was hit that's wow. so much pressure to put on that's especially the baseball player did it because then yeah. next thing you know that dude he gets pulled in for look they're looking at him for roids next thing you know <laughs> oh. your fun little cancer home run has an asterisk next to it no. and then no one can talk to mark mcguire ever again isn't that <laughs> sad but richard's fantasies went far beyond just an attaboy from al capone Richard Loeb would also fantasize about being caught, but with a twist. <gasps> After being imprisoned, he would be whipped and beaten by male prison guards. Oh, Everyone yes. would be half naked. Yep. But a crowd <laughs> of spectators, mostly young girls, would look on with both admiration and pity. He's so dark. He's a little sexy. <laughs> He's so dark. Wow, you're the biggest girl I've ever seen. Yep, that's why I'm here. He's pretty sexy. <laughs> Ooh, wow, you should go free him, you giant. <laughs> go free him. See, get him from his cuff. Spend I, the bars. I would. I will. <laughs> so hold on. Let me watch him get whipped a little bit more. I'm having a big one. <laughs> wow, your clit is huge. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's been it's been like that. Wow. Yep. <laughs> yeah. yeah you should you should see it when uh you should see it when i'm really horny wow the, your whole vagina is so filled out yeah yeah it's pretty big it's a pretty big one I mean, i'm just happy to be here Sexy. well nathan leopold on the other hand he was fulfilling a different fantasy entirely with this crime spree. While Loeb got off on getting away with crimes, 
Leopold got off on serving Loeb. Hmm. See, since Nathan was around eight years old, his strongest fantasy involved himself in the role of a slave to a king. Yeah, and this is sort of like the Unforgiven 2 video by Metallica, (laughs) Metallica. but with a lot more browning. Okay, (laughs) but again, I mean, this is is a yin and a yang. They're coming together here. Well, in this fantasy, Nathan Leopold was handsome, intelligent, (gasps) and strong. The strongest man in the world, in fact. So big and round. Mm -hmm. But he would still be a slave who had earned the gratitude of the king by saving the king's life somehow. Cool. Kicking a boar in the head. Yeah. However, whatever you got to do to save the king, stop him from eating uh, poisoned grapes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Kill yeah. the queen. Yeah. Whatever it takes. But even though the king had offered Nathan the slave his freedom because he had committed such a heroic deed, whatever that deed might be, Nathan Leopold would always choose to remain a slave to protect the king and save him from his enemies. In other words, Nathan the slave would be the king's number one guy. You are my number one guy. This kind of reminds me of the time when I was, um, when the recession hit in 2008 and I had a corporate job and I was working at this office and then they offered me, they were like, hey, listen, we know you want to be a comedian and stuff. And they're like, but what if instead of you being an AA, we pay for you to get a finance degree and then you can be promoted within the company and make more right. money and be higher up. And I said, I'm a comedian. What if I just stay your assistant forever? And then they fired me two days later. They fired Absolutely. me so hard. As they should yeah. have. Yeah, yeah, I did yeah. not know, though. I thought it would be a relief to them to say, yeah. like, no, I'll stay a slave. Right. Yeah. I'll just <laughs> yeah. stay here. All right. You know, I used to fantasize when I was real big as opposed to now, which I'm kind of big, but I'm also really big. I used to fantasize about jumping on a grenade and saving the whole class. Yeah. And and it also reminds me of like the I used to have a fantasy as a little boy of like your like funeral, like while the Goo Goo Dolls played where you're like, do want the world to see me. And the thing about, yeah, now Danielle like Suzuki, she will fucking cry now knowing that I'm Mm -hmm. fucking dead. At 11. But she won't care, actually. She won't care. She wouldn't, she wouldn't even remember weep. you now. She'd weep. Isn't that something? Just wanted to go on the road, bro. That's all I wanted to do. Wow, you always wanted to hitchhike, huh? Mm-hmm. No, I wanted to drive, you know? Like 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 fucking Kerouac, man. Like, just fucking go on the road. Just fucking you can do drive. that now. The Subaru Outback has got some of the best miles, miles per gallon of Fantastic. any car possible. Yeah. It really does, but now I have responsibilities. I can't do that. Mm, that sucks, but, bro. Yeah, bro. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Sucks, dude. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Well, in another version of Nathan Leopold's slave fantasies, the king would find Nathan as a young boy, beaten and abused by (gasps) slavers. But the king would rescue Nathan. And because Nathan was so much the cat's meow, the king would make him a member of the royal household. In turn, Nathan would grow up and go on to own slaves of his own, who would be branded with a crown on the inner calf of their leg to signify themselves as Nathan's property. Again, a little I, Keith Raniere there. I, I, yes, mm. yes, yes. And this, these might, uh, I'm not saying I have this fantasy. I'm saying every tiny person has this fantasy. Right. Yeah. But it's, it's, it's definitely, a, it's, it is absolutely a tiny man's fantasy. Yes, it's a tiny way. man's fantasy, but you know, you got to let him have it. You know what I mean? Because you got to let them have it because they, they, it has to be somewhere for them. It can be a fantasy. Yeah, yeah it has it to remain a, a fantasy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah and that, but that's the thing. As Richard and Nathan's relationship grew and as they committed more crimes together, no matter how petty, the more their two fantasy lives became intertwined. The mm. criminal king and the slave who did his bidding. I feel like it was a part of their, their browning sequence would be talking about this 
fantasy mm-hmm. that yeah. they would talk about this because he would prop up Richard. Like he would literally say, like, you're my king. I'll be your slave, blah, blah, blah. We're going to do this together. And Richard's like, are, are we done with Browning? Can I be the merchant? <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're like, where'd you come from? Where'd that huge I'm just here from? to watch. <laughs> now, I don't think that Nathan or Richard would have ever committed murder without the other. You know, it's a lot like Carla Homolka and Paul Bernardo. Well, I think Paul, I think Paul Bernardo probably would have murdered without because he was already the Scarborough rapist. Well, that's the thing. I think it's possible, but not probable that Paul Bernardo might never have escalated from serial rape to serial murder. I think Paul Bernardo would have had to had to have accidentally killed someone. If he would have accidentally killed someone in the commission of a rape, then yes, he would have become a serial murderer. Did the thing where he made it so the murder was inevitable, quote unquote. Exactly. and But I don't think Carla Mocha would have ever, she wouldn't have committed even one murder, much less three, without Paul Bernardo. And similarly, Richard Loeb, as a good-looking sociopath, would have undoubtedly done terrible things in his life, most likely in the corporate world, working for Sears Roebuck, but he probably wouldn't have murdered anyone without Loeb's encouragement. I mean, who put the chainsaws at Sears? Yeah, right. Well, I mean, what psychopath did. at Sears was like, we need hammers. People need hammers. <laughs> we need fucking hammers. Most people use hammers for nailing. I things. want a nail gun. <laughs> yeah, because you have to build a house with it. Oh, not shit. everything's you do, murdering people. You could do nerd shit with it. <laughs> it's not nerdy to build a house. This old house. You ever see that show? Well, Nathan Leopold, meanwhile, he would have been a different type of non-homicidal sociopath altogether. He would have been the sort of person who ruins the day of any person they come into contact with and makes everyone in their personal lives permanently fucking miserable. He's psychic vampire. Yeah, that is. That's probably what he would have been had he not met Richard Lowe. But as it was, the Leopold and Lowe partnership nearly broke up in 1921. That year, Richard transferred to the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. And Nathan, Mm -hmm. desperate to keep a hold of his king, transferred as well. Oh. But shortly after Nathan Leopold's arrival, he caught scarlet fever, then had to return to Chicago for his mother's funeral. By the time he returned to Richard Loeb, Nathan found that his lover had joined a fraternity who had told Richard that he wouldn't be welcome if he continued to let that creepy weird dude with the stuffed birds blow him all the time. Huh. Yeah. What? I thought that was how you get into the fraternity. Oh, no, you got to suck that guy's dick. Oh, yeah. my God. And, and, well, no, you don't suck dick in the fraternity. You eat cum. It's the yeah, okey cookie thing. Oh, yeah, that's the thing. And you, have to, you eat a whole bunch of different guys' cum. So that's the thing. You don't know who's cum. You, you've eaten everyone's cum, so you've kind of yeah. eaten no one's cum. No, you've eaten everyone's. That's, that's not it true. Is, that is math someone sold you on, Marcus, because it yeah. is everyone's cum. Thank yeah. you, sir. May I have another? And then it's yeah. a lot of nudity. It's a lot of nudity. Yeah. They're all blowing each other. Well, they're like they like looking at penises. It's how the it's how men bond. I was never into it. I like to play with the girls. Yeah. yeah. And so for a couple of years, Leopold and Loeb separated. Nathan transferred back to Chicago in the fall of 1923. But when Loeb returned to Chicago as well for graduate school, they reconnected at the age of 18 and renewed both their friendship and their sexual escapades. For some reason, I kind of feel like a failure. They're in grad school at 18? I mean, yeah. this it's different. Oh, it's a community college. They were also the scions of Chicago. Like, these right. are people that are they, are, they move in different circles that we would never, we would never see. These circles still exist, right? Like, yeah. they get kind of, they get very special treatment, Kissel, don't worry. I know. Um, but do you think that they, when they got back together, it's basically because Richard Loeb was already becoming a burnout. Like, in his years in Ann Arbor, he 
became an irresponsible drunk. Like yeah. he was really, really out of control. His drinking became really crazy. It's Michigan. And, but they, they have like, he was one of those dudes who had nothing but potential and all the money in the world and every, he could explore any avenue that he wanted. Mm. And by then he kind of realized it and just sat back and would party all the time and do the, do the thing that all, oh, a lot of rich kids do that are in, yeah. uh, uh, an Obama uh, child. They, they literally like hang out, get hammered, sit around all day. And they knew that. But I think that there was something when he came back and met Leopold again, where he's like, he, this is what I need. I yeah. needed my slave. Yeah. Ah, yes, indeed. I needed my slave. That's how I can be important. Yeah. And also in the intervening years, Nathan Leopold had started to inch closer towards Richard Loeb's ideas of superiority, specifically after Leopold discovered and wildly misinterpreted the words of Friedrich Nietzsche and the concept of the Ubermensch. Now, Ooh. I tried. I read a lot of stuff. I saw some memes <laughs> involving him. I listened to some yeah. videos trying yeah. to explain, because I know about Nietzsche, Nachi, Nietzsche's. Nietzsche. I'm Ray, calling him Nachos. Ray All right, Nitsch I'm calling him fucking Nachos. <laughs> Ray Nitschke, linebacker Mr. for the Green Mr. Freddy Nachos had a lot of ideas, <laughs> right? I kind of view him now, and this might be entirely wrong, and I can't wait to be read to filth, but maybe I am, I don't know. Maybe I'm slightly correct. He reminds me a little bit of an Aleister Crowley, where on one surface, on a surface level, it's kind of easy to misinterpret yeah. his viewpoints. Very easy. It's very easy because it, it's done in aphorisms. It's done in very like catch, you know, like the, whatever kills you, whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. The will to power. Like there's certain things that you mm -hmm. say that are catchphrases that can be used very easily by people with bad purposes. But also like it's about how you unpack it. Like it's really about looking in deeper past the first level and understand that Freddie Nachos was way more <laughs> of a poet and a fucking horse lover, like oh, too, yeah. too much, kind of a pussy. Okay, now okay, okay. So the horse story, it's just okay. So Nietzsche, near like in his thirties or forties, he started to lose his mind just a little bit. Uh, and one day he saw a horse being beat on the street, and so he ran up to the horse and he hugged the horse, and according to legend, said, "Forgive me, mother." Uh, and he was never the same after that, and barely spoke, and was just half an invalid. So just um, remember that when you're trying to court. A girl and you're like I knew Frederick Nietzsche and it'll be no. like the linebacker for the Green Bay Packers. I don't think I don't think Freddie Nachos has turned on a woman once, no. except for his sister, because then yeah. you find out that that was why he got co-opted by the Nazis because she brought all of these things over to the Nazis. Fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, she yes, she misinterpreted everything. Now well, Nietzsche's great. now Nietzsche's Uberman Uber. Now, Nietzsche's Ubermensch Uber has been co-opted by everyone from Carl Jung to, of course, the Nazis. But what's interesting is that Nietzsche himself never actually defined what the Ubermensch was. And as Henry said, it was actually his sister who twisted his words to fit all of the Nazi bullshit. Nietzsche would not have been happy. But for Nietzsche, one of the theories, and again, this is one of the theories because we're not fucking philosophy majors. My wife is. She tried explaining minor. it to me. Yeah. I didn't understand it. She also, because that was the thing, she was mm -hmm. trying to explain. And yeah. we're all like... And all we paid attention to was the fucking horse. That's God, all we... That's all I learned. <laughs> all I learned was that he liked a horse once too much to ride anymore. That's interesting. And then, yeah. But yeah, Freddie Nachos is fucking... He's complex. And I actually yeah. don't know if, if what his stuff... I don't know. I'm fucking not, dude. Who knows? Well, according to one of the theories, the Ubermensch was more of a vision than a theory. Mentioned in the prologue to his work of philosophical fiction, Thus Spake Zarathustra, Nietzsche wrote, quote... The Ubermensch shall be the meaning of the earth, 
I entreat you, my brethren, remain true to the earth and do not believe those who speak to you of supraterrestrial hopes. Behold, I teach you the Ubermansion. He is this lightning. He is this madness. Behold, I am the prophet of the lightning in a heavy drop from the cloud. But this lightning is called Uber Mitch. Did you hear Taco Bell's bringing back the Mexican pizza? <laughs> but no, he's uh, the Uber Mensch is more of like this idea. It's the idea of the person with the he, this this quote unquote person. This this theory of a person has a higher mentality than others, and yeah. then they are then, which is in a way. But I don't know whether or not this is true or not. They are then separate from quote unquote morality, but because their goals are so high, whatever they have to do to reach those goals is chill. Yeah. Like, I believe that that is the that is one of the layman dumb shit explanations of the Ubermensch theory <laughs> that then got ran too far because it was only a fraction of the shit that Freddie Nachos was even talking about. All right. Yeah. Also, Ubermensch, fantastic new uh, car share ride. You get it there. <laughs> Where you're, uh, it's where this the train car. Yeah, where it, this, when the no. Uberman showed up, I honestly was really because I didn't want to take an Uber pool because there's a no. there's a new wave, and then yeah. I come in there and all of a sudden you got, you got into this train car and it was very unpleasant. Absolutely, yeah. I always love it when my uh, Uber driver is also a bit of a uh, philosophical uh, thinker as well. Yeah, yeah. that's yeah. how you get a one star. Yeah. <laughs> But from this excerpt, Nathan Leopold, like so many dicks with a superiority complex before and after, he expanded these scant four lines to justify his own morally reprehensible actions. For Nathan Leopold, the Ubermensch, or Superman, I mean, it technically translates to Overman, but Superman also works as well. The Superman stood outside of the law and was beyond the moral code that constrained the actions of ordinary men. In effect, the Ubermensch wouldn't even need to reference the greater good as a justification for murder. Because they are, as in the in the state of being said Ubermensch, they are automatically overman. So yes. it doesn't matter what they do. We, we do. Our reaction to what they do doesn't matter. Yes, that they could. The Superman could justify murder by simply saying. It gives me pleasure to do so. And of course, that is a complete misunderstanding of what Nietzsche was trying to say. Yes, because there is an interpretation that the so-called will to power is supposed to be a personal transformation, much like, you know, each man and woman is a star, like that idea yeah. that you're it's more about personal transformation and not lowering it over everybody else. Either way, it is a fucking great way to just absolutely bring a hinge date to a screaming halt. Absolutely. <laughs> Have just fun need, with it. Just let it go, man. I just yeah. feel like Freddie Nachos doesn't need to be out there as much anymore. And people should listen to more like what's a better I, dune honestly yet? i've learned more about like dune got me laid more than nachos did. Bob, yeah. bobcat goldthwaite uh fantastic yeah he's got some great parodies out there of yeah. the, the one about america which is a mm-hmm. uh, fantastic maybe mention some of his films sure yeah yeah or ask her some questions yeah ask her questions what do you like to do for a living how do you plan to express your will to power well yeah. i like to read me But with this belief in mind, Leopold and Lowe began escalating once more. And this time, they'd keep escalating until they hit murder. No. Graduating from vandalism, Leopold and Loeb decided to add burglary to their repertoire in November of 1923. Was there a ceremony for their graduation? (laughs) Did somebody show up? (laughs) 
It yeah. was like, congratulations, you're graduating from burglary this week. <laughs> this is really, this step, is step, awesome. Step, 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 step. Whoa. During a football game between the Michigan Wolverines and the Quantico Devil Dogs. Whoa. <laughs> Why does it sound like it's just a group of gas station employees? <laughs> Leopold and Loeb drove Nathan's red Willis Knight sports car Ooh. from Chicago to Ann Arbor to rob Richard's old fraternity. You know they both have like babushkas on. Yeah. Like the what's the spots? What's the movie? The, ma- the Spies mad- like us? No, the Mad Woman movie. The Mad mm. Woman movie. Mm. Where they Let's... commit suicide. Thelma oh, and Louise. Thelma and Louise. Yeah. yeah. Fantastic. You really ruined that movie for a lot of people. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. They commit yeah. suicide at the end of it. Everyone knows they commit suicide at the end of it. If you've seen Wayne's World, you know they commit suicide at the end of it. And I think most people have seen Wayne's World two. I think it was. Yeah, it's Wayne's World two. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, after searching through the house with flashlights in their hands and revolvers in their pockets, Whoa. Leopold and Loeb came out with an assortment of pen knives, watches, and fountain pens, as well as $74 in cash. But the most important ill-gotten gain was an Underwood portable typewriter, which Nathan kept for himself. But even while Nathan Leopold came away with a new toy, he wasn't all that jazzed about the score or the experience. On the drive home, Nathan argued that the payoff wasn't worth the 12-hour round trip, but that wasn't what Nathan was really upset about. Yeah, because you know that in a couple. When you're fighting about dumb shit, it's Mm -hmm. not about the dumb shit. It's about what the dumb shit means, Marcus. Mm -hmm. Well, eventually, Nathan's anger was revealed to really be about the fact that he and Richard didn't have sex anywhere near as much as they did when they first got together, back when they were at the University of Chicago. Back when we were children. Yes. So Richard, missing the point entirely, made a proposition. Okay, 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 okay. hear me out. Hear me out, hear me out. Okay, okay, okay. Right. I get it, I get it, I get it. You're empty. You want to be full. I'm the stuff that got to make you full. <laughs> yeah. And you need that stuff, right? Absolutely. Right, this, is like, this is a pipeline problem. All right, yeah, I'm going to call pipe- my father. He knows how to do all these shipping lines. Okay. <laughs> Fill me up, please. <laughs> well, Richard proposed that if Nathan continued to participate in any and all criminal ventures that Richard suggested, okay. then Richard would agree to brown with Nathan three times every two months. And this is where you get, this is where it's good for you, right? Because you look over here, much. right? We got a Thursday, because Thursday's my favorite day of the week, because okay, it's why? the new Friday. Okay, And then we Friday, got down weird. here, we got the second Saturday of each month, because yeah. that's a party Saturday, <laughs> then we can go out, right? Sure. We'll go, to, we'll go to the bowling alley, we'll brown. Okay. We'll go back out. Maybe we can get a stiff cocktail or something if it's not illegal yet. Absolutely. Then maybe we can brown again, depending on whether or not you're wearing a wig or something. Sure. And then when we get down here, we can do here the first Monday of every last week, because what that does is (laughs) starts the week with a brown. And then now all of a sudden, you've been browned out, I've been browned in, and you know we can get back to... All almost, the other, we got a lot of other plans. We got a lot of things we're moving around here. Yeah, I'd almost go for a little bit more, to be honest. It's not that much. Uh, right, right now, let's start with this. Okay. And then, honestly, next quarter, we can turn back around and really look at some of the numbers. Fantastic. Well, Nathan, desperate to both have sex with and serve his king, readily agreed. But Richard began to think that maybe Nathan had a point here. The frat heist had been far too easy. And a man of Richard's supposed superior criminal intellect would need a real challenge in order for him to keep justifying his own high opinion of himself. Meanwhile, Nathan's like, that's not the point I was trying to make at all. I'm looking for more dick. Yeah, And I wish that what you understood here was that I am neglecting Nathan. (laughs) Right. Seems like that could have solved a lot of problems. 
And similarly, Nathan, as a supposed ubermensch, needed to cement his status as a person who could and should do whatever he wanted, even murder, for any reason. So, on the road back to Chicago, they began outlining what they thought was the perfect crime. See, as we know from our Ma Barker series, kidnapping was the crime du jour in the 1920s. All the biggest and most infamous criminals were doing it. So Leopold, and especially Loeb, who wanted to count himself amongst the criminal masterminds of the day, decided that kidnapping was their crime to commit. Eureka! Yes, we got it! Nailed it! Now, of course, ransom would be involved, and they need to construct an intricate plan to receive the ransom money without detection. But in order to remove any chance of identification and therefore capture, Mm -hmm. they decided they would have to kill the child. I also think they were talking about killing a child. Is that weirdly also in a way is I feel like that they know that it would be physically easier. Uh, to kill a child versus a full-grown man or a full-grown yeah. woman. Right? Oh, of course. You, yeah, you can just start, slam well, their head in a car door. Their way up. Yeah. You can I give see. them, bla- you know, arsenic lace candy. Um, there's a lot can, of ways you can do it. There's so many ways you could put a tinier yeah. noose. You can buy less rope. Yeah. There's so mm-hmm. many there's ways to kill a child. Can, there are, yeah. yes. But it does seem like they put a, it does seem like they put a lot of effort into the details of the ransom collection and they not probably, a lot of details into the murder part of it. I, I don't know. I, I, I would argue differently. But we'll get to that point later. Put another way, murder was not the point of Leopold and Loeb's crime. The point was to commit a kidnapping, receive a ransom, and not get caught doing it. For Mm. them, murder was simply a means to an end. It was just the next step in the plan. So, over the course of seven months, Nathan and Richard continued to develop how they would commit a kidnapping. And we should get a big sack. Oh, that's a good idea. We got a big sack. What if we threw one of those holes on the ground? Where you put it, it's like a black hole, right? It's, sure. like, it's like a black some... disc. You put it down there, but then they fall down That's because they don't idea. understand that it's not indeed a hole. Yeah, we're going to be using those in the in the Vietnam War that we don't know about yet. No, oh, it's a conflict. I heard. Yeah, it's a conflict. Yeah, <laughs> and they started to plan how they would get away with the subsequent murder. Murder. Boiled down to complete simplicity, the plan was to lure a boy into a car, knock him out, drive him to a deserted spot on the Indiana state line, kill him. And hide the body. Well, it's a, such, such a fucking brilliant plan. I mean, yeah. it, it sounds wow. like it's A to Z, man. Yeah. Jeez. Well, specifically, they would hide the corpse in a drainage pipe near some railroad tracks at Wolf Lake, where Nathan Leopold often hunted birds for his stuffed bird collection. And what I imagine is that everyone there will be so busy searching for birds in the most incredible way possible. In the most incredible hobby it's ever been. They'll never see a little boy's feet in a pipe. Oh, mm-hmm. my goodness. As far as how they'd kill the boy, they figured a bullet would be simplest. But Richard rightly surmised that if they were caught, only one of them would technically be the murderer. So they decided to both (sighs) strangle the boy by each pulling different ends of the same rope wrapped around the boy's throat. And this way, they were equally guilty. It's such a nerdy way to break down a murder. As yeah. well, and what? Why tit for tat? Again, in relationships, what's, you can't do the tit for tat. I mean, well, I te- technically, I think they're they you're did this both right. guilty. If one yeah, of you murders the and the point. other one's in the car and you help plan it, you're both guilty. Mutually unless assured, one, mutually assured destruction. Well, unless one flips on the other. Exactly, yeah, and that's the thing is that it shows that they did not trust each other at all. They both knew each other's essential nature. The hardest part, of course, was how they would obtain the ransom money in a quick and anonymous fashion. And after much discussion, they decided that the best delivery method would be by train. And Henry, you are right. They did put a lot of thought into this. It's actually quite brilliant, if you want to know the honest truth. Live from your grave. 
Hey, what's up, everyone? How you doing? Ben Kissel here with Henry Zabrowski. Yeah, it's me, man. Yeah, bro. Henry Zabrowski is smoking some of that sweet last podcast of the left, babe. So go out there and purchase yourself some. I hope you enjoy it. We have sativa, we have indica, and we have a hybrid. And I have to tell you, from my personal experience, they are wonderful. Super tasty live resin. You really get the delicious weedy taste, which is what I like. And yes. three different experiences. You go to your local vape store and get it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you all so much for supporting the show. We absolutely love you. Can't wait to see you on the road and get that vape, put it in your brain and have a good time. And if you want us at your favorite weed store, give them a call and ask for them by name. Last podcast on the left. It's weed. Hail yourselves, everyone. Hail Satan. Well, after the kidnapping, the plan went, they would telephone the victim's father and tell him to go to a drugstore on 63rd and Blackstone Avenue, adjacent to the 63rd Street Station, to wait for a second phone call. That phone call would come just before the train reached the station at its scheduled time, and the boy's father would be instructed to board the train, walk to the rear carriage, and look in a telegraph box for a letter with further instructions. The letter would tell him to throw the ransom, securely wrapped in a cigar box, from the train five seconds after it passed the distinctive red brick water tower of the Champion Manufacturing Company. There's a lot of details. There's so many details. <laughs> I actually details. don't think this is brilliant because it's way too complex. And then the guy's like, what if there was more than one red brick water tower? Well, Aha, it, but it was distinctive. That's yeah. everyone in Chicago knew about the Champion Manufacturing Company red brick water tower. They it was a very, it was a big it. landmark. Everybody knew about Everybody it. Everybody knew about it. <laughs> all right. And if the package was thrown at just the right time, then Leopold and Loeb figured that it would land close to 74th Street, where they'd be waiting with the engine running. And sure enough, when they rehearsed it multiple times. The package landed exactly where they needed it to land. This okay. is where it, the ransom part seems to be way more about control. Mm. Again, it's about they they because again they're not they want to get the money, but they don't care about the money. They don't care about the money. It's no. just about ha- knowing that mm-hmm. the father of this child is running around doing all of these tasks for you right. and it's another way to extend their little criminal almost sexual game yeah. to like say like okay now we got him dancing on our puppet string while he doesn't even know we've already killed his kid oh and it's also about making sure that the cops can't follow them that they're not being seen i mean ultimately it is about not getting caught and thinking oh i'm so smart for coming up with this very intricate plan that Nobody could ever find Leopold and Loeb. And they're spending time tracking down the ransom note and all of that shit instead of Mm -hmm. looking for a body. Yeah. But since Leopold and Loeb were both extremely wealthy, Leopold had a distinctive rich kid car. A red Willis Knight sports car with a nickel bumper. Ooh. Which, that's going to be bad for a getaway. Yes. Oh. So, they decided to rent a car and create false identities to do so. This is all, again, this is all like, it's not, I don't know if it's, it's distinctly a sexual. It's, the, it's their fucking it's a hobby. hobby. It's yeah, literally, right. it's, like, it's how they spend their time. Because then they put all of this other time into this fucking plan, too. Mm-hmm. Is, like, it doesn't need to be this labyrinthine. Yeah. And I actually, I greatly simplified this plan, but uh, basically (laughs) two weeks before the kidnapping was to take place, Nathan Leopold walked into a car rental company and told him that he was a traveling salesman named Mort Ballard. Yeah, (laughs) name's Mort Ballard. I'm straight as a question mark. What I'm going to need from you is a hatchback because that's where it's got calling it the Brown Mobile. Absolutely. My name is is Larry Prolapse. Larry Prolapse. Oh, this Uh, is my buddy Larry. 
very prolapsed. Yes. We're not. We're, yes. we're just having a good time. Look at a rent a car to brown it. Businessmen. <laughs> He's a businessman. Businessman. Uh, that's my man. Businessman. Yeah. And he said, I got to rent a car. Okay. So he paid a $400 deposit and put Woo. down a man named Lewis Mason as a reference, which was, Woo. of course, Richard Loeb, who was waiting at a diner a few blocks away. The rental company called for the reference, and Richard Loeb, posing as Lewis Mason, said that Mort Ballard of Peoria was the most dependable young man he'd ever met in his life. <laughs> and as a result, Leopold and Loeb secured an untraceable rental for the day of the kidnapping, set for May 21st, 1924. Now, the day before, Nathan and Richard went on a shopping spree to pick up everything they needed for the kidnapping, the murder, and the ransom note. That's the funnest part. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like you're preparing for vacation. Yeah, yeah. that's awesome. Going to need a shovel. And we're going to need a little Snickers bar just in case we get hungry. And we're little, maybe we can get a little bag of chips in case we get hungry. I don't have time to cater this. What if we got What if we got a little piece of ham? We're moving on. Just in case we get hungry. Yeah. But then if we get the ham, we're going to have to get a little bit of ice to make sure the ham doesn't get too moist. Well, we we might have get to a concentrate bit of on what we're doing here. Which we're doing a murder here, okay? Well, but now that we have the ice, we can get some Coca-Cola. I, need, I feel like we're focusing too much on what we're having for lunch and not enough on how we need to kill a boy today. Okay. <laughs> Well, from the stationery store, Nathan bought paper envelopes and a box of chocolate creams. It pretty much gave him the appearance that he's a man ready to write a love letter. I mean, my chocolate creams, of course. Uh. <laughs> Soon after, though, Nathan went to a drugstore and bought a pint of hydrochloric acid and half a pint of ether, which suggested a different kind of night altogether. Oh, Wait yeah, a man. second. You can just buy that then? That, yeah. was, a, that was the first speedball. Oh, yeah. I see. Back then, you could just buy that. I mean, he told the clerk, like, hey, I am a student over at the college. I'm doing some science experiments. Name's Mort Ballard, and I am here for, yeah, not for Browning. Certainly, I am already to just do business with my acid. Do you know me? I'm addicted to ether. (laughs) Richard, meanwhile, bought the murder weapons from a hardware store in the same neighborhood as the drugstore. And that day, Richard Loeb bought a rope and a sharp-edged chisel with a wooden handle to preferably be used for bludgeoning, but stabbing was certainly an option as well. If we're feeling fun. If you're yeah. feeling that, that's fun. Murder store, hardware store. I mean, come on now. That's what's cool about a hardware store is you're surrounded by all those weapons. They yeah. It smells like nails. Yeah. And finally, they wrote the ransom letter. Using a note published in Detective Story magazine as a model, Nathan typed the missive on the Underwood typewriter he'd stolen from Richard's old fraternity house and did so without any grammatical or spelling errors, which will be very important later on. I spelled Beverly wrong. You know, and have you done any research into the comparisons of the letter, the Leopold and Loeb ransom letter and the John Benet Ramsey uh, ransom letter? No, I have not. Have you? Yes. <laughs> Yes, I have. Maybe get a little Coca-Cola just in case we get hungry later. <laughs> We're fin- we need to kill a boy today. Yeah. <laughs> Everything was set. And at 11 a.m. on May 21st, 1924, Leopold and Loeb met up to commit what they believed was going to be the perfect crime. Mm-hmm. And they believed they were committing it just for the sake of it. The thrill of it. And after renting the car under the previously established identity of Mort Ballard. My name's Mort Ballard, straight as hell. Married <laughs> to a woman these nigh on 57 years. Yeah, I may, be, I may look like I'm 19, but right. I'm 57 years old. Businessman, fantastic. Nathan drove the rental car back home while Richard followed in Nathan's car. Nathan's car was then dropped off with the Leopold family chauffeur, Sven England. Jesus. 
who was told to look at the brakes on Nathan's Willis Knight because they'd been squeaking as of late. Have you checked it for mice? <laughs> a little mice. It's a Swedish joke. A little mouse in the car. Well, Sven said brakes probably just need a quick greasing. It's not going to take long at all. But Nathan got indignant. And he told Sven to completely take apart the braking system and put it back together again. You put it back together and you can do it this instant. Come on. Actually, Nathan, I actually had a bite of that Snickers bar as I was following you. And I think I was just hangry. So I actually feel great. I don't really want to kill a child. I can't believe what we're doing. I can't believe my whole afternoon's been ruined. (laughs) But this ensured that Sven England would be busy all day long. And once Sven was put in his place, Nathan took the murder tools from his car and loaded them into the rental, where Richard was waiting. By 1 p.m., Leopold and Loeb arrived at their so-called hunting grounds. They'd chosen the streets surrounding Nathan Leopold's alma mater, the Harvard School for Boys. Not just because Nathan was familiar with the area, but because they were almost guaranteed to pick up a boy whose father could easily pay the ransom. Yeah, it sounds like it. They're at the Harvard School for Boys. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. It just just sounds like a place for kidnappers to live. It really does. (laughs) It sounds absolutely horrifying. And indeed, Leopold and Loeb did have a list of potential victims, starting with a kid named Johnny Levinson. After stopping Johnny on the street and having a chat, Leopold and Loeb learned that he was about to go play baseball at a field on 49th Street. The plan was to watch the game, follow Johnny home afterward, lure him into the car, and kill him. But luckily for Johnny... He decided to skip the diamond on that fateful day. And then you have to watch a whole Little League game. Yeah. Yeah, it's just the worst. I feel like nothing bears the mark of a criminal more than when I see a man in the airport watching the Children's World Series. I think like when they have these Little Leagues have it, like I feel weird when a bunch of grown ass men are like, yeah, look at the legs of this fucking hoss. He can can charge up and down. What I like about him, he's got a good set on him. He's got a good gait. He's got long arms. He's got a big, deep torso. And I wish I could really wrap my hands around him to see how solid he was but it's just hard they won't let me on the field it is really freaking gross dude. It. especially when it comes to sports like lebron was on the cover of si when he was in eighth grade i think and they were scouting him since like fifth grade which means they just have to watch a bunch of children play basketball and it's just boring it's just kids Ugh. playing basketball yeah no. it's kind of a gross business no it's fine if your kids playing basketball no, if I'm your sure. relatives playing basketball even... but a stranger watching a bunch of children play a sport is strange yes and seeing dollar signs that's why i don't even go to college football games because i feel like you guys are cool kids huh They're all i love kids. the syracuse orange man. They're children exactly yeah. yeah the further i get away from college yes the weirder watching college football does seem well after realizing that johnny wasn't coming Leopold and Loeb returned to their car and spent another two hours just driving around. And just when they were ready to give up and try again the next day, Loeb spotted a 14-year-old boy walking alone down Ellis Avenue. There she goes. Oh, no. Loeb immediately pegged him as the ideal victim. But when he looked closer, he found that he actually knew the boy. The boy's name was Bobby Franks. And he not only lived on the same street as Richard Loeb, but he was also his second cousin. I don't know. I feel like the name Bobby Franks, he'll rip off your arms and beat you to death with him. Like Bobby Franks is a tough name. It definitely sounds like the name of a kid whose picture you'd see with a candle next to it at a wake. (laughs) (laughs) Like it does seem like old Bobby Franks. He didn't uh, have long for this world. He was half Frankfurter. (laughs) You know how it is with the nitrates. Yeah, those are bad for you. 
Bobby Franks' father, Jacob Franks, had actually purchased his home from Richard Loeb's father, which meant that not only was a ransom guaranteed, but luring Bobby into the rental car would be that much easier. But once Nathan and Richard pulled up to talk to Bobby, they found that Bobby didn't really need a ride because he was only two blocks from his house. I don't need to go with you! I said, get sorry, me like, that's the problem. He's pulling in like a child like me into the car being like, you guys ain't trying to suck my dick. (laughs) Get out of here. You got 20 bucks. (laughs) Richard responded by saying that he just wanted to know more about the tennis racket he'd seen Bobby use the day before. Because Bobby played tennis at the Loeb house fairly often. Richard knew this kid. I don't understand why all you adults are watching me all the time. Yeah, leave the kid alone. And so Bobby Franks agreed to ride around for a bit and talk tennis. He got in the front seat while Nathan drove and Richard sat in the back. Then, as Nathan Leopold turned the car down 50th Street, Richard Loeb reached forward, covered Bobby's mouth with his left hand, and brought the blunt side of the chisel down hard on the boy's head with his right. He bashed his second cousin's skull again and again, spattering blood all over the car and Nathan's clothes. Bobby attempted to fight back, but eventually gave up, at which point Richard pulled him into the back seat and stuffed a cloth down the boy's throat as Mm. far as it would go. He then covered Bobby's mouth with tape, after which Bobby slid down to the floorboard and died from asphyxiation. Damn, that's a freaking brutal murder. Oh yeah, and it's very far from the plan already. Yeah. Yeah. Continuing on calmly, Nathan drove toward the Indiana state line, and the pair stopped for hot dogs on the way with Bobby's corpse in the backseat of the car. This hot is a dogs, be- this get is your a- hot dogs, kill your second cousin today, hot dogs, <laughs> get your hot dogs. This is a BTK joke, I think. Yeah. Because his name literally was Bobby Franks. You oh, think God. so? Yeah. Yeah, maybe. Oh, God. They like doing everything that you can apply to shitheads, you mm-hmm. can apply to Leopold and Lowe. Do you get it? Do you, Nathan, you get do you get it? it? Yeah. You get yeah. it? Yeah. Oh, oh, finally, God. after dark, they arrived at Wolf Lake, their disposal destination. They continued with flashlights to the drainage pipe they'd already scattered out to stuff Bobby's corpse inside, where they believed the corpse would quickly decompose and disappear through a combination of drainage trickle and summer heat. Once they arrived, Leopold and Loeb laid Bobby's corpse on a blanket and got to work on disfiguring the body just in case anyone found it, in the hopes that identification would then be impossible. Well, this would make it, quote-unquote, the perfect crime. Yes. They're so stupid. First, they stripped the corpse naked and poured a few drops of hydrochloric acid on the face to burn away the skin. Then, Nathan poured the rest on the corpse's genitals, because he'd heard that it was possible to identify a body by the shape of its genitals. Richard's like, who have you been talking to that's not me? Number one, who have you else you've been talking to? And also, number two, that's the grossest factoid I've heard in a minute. It must have been some horny-ass Sherlock Holmes book you read, where Sherlock was like, I know exactly who that is. Mm, You can tell by the vagina. <laughs> well, finally, it came time to shove the body into the drainage pipe. But frustratingly for the two supposed master criminals, the pipe was too narrow, and it took quite a bit of effort to get it to fit even a little bit. And in the end, the feet still stuck out. Jeez. I just don't like the look of it. I don't no. like the look of it. It looks like a deranged cannoli. <laughs> I don't want this to be our signature, Richard. <laughs> well, it's definitely not hidden, so that's not a good idea. Dirty Italians. <laughs> but the thing that Leopold and Loeb were soon to discover, 
is that it doesn't matter how long you spend planning your crime if you leave evidence behind. Yep. And just as Richard was climbing out of the drainage ditch, he heard a metallic clink. (gasps) After searching with his flashlight, he couldn't find anything incriminating. So he decided, fuck it. Probably wasn't anything. Crushed it. Should be good. We'll fucking handle it in post. All right, high fives all around. Hot dogs, get your hot dogs. Just murder your second cousin, hot dogs. So he and Nathan returned to the rental, secure in their belief that they'd committed the perfect crime. (laughs) They're so stupid. After returning to Chicago, they drove to Hyde Park, bought two six-cent stamps, and mailed off the ransom note, which was sure to arrive the next morning. Lastly, they burned Bobby Franks' clothes in the basement furnace of Loeb's house. At 10.30 that night, after all the hard evidence was disposed of, Leopold and Loeb squeezed into a telephone booth together at a Walgreens and made the first call to the Franks' home. <laughs> stop laughing. They this is serious. <laughs> you stop laughing. They, you, you were the one. You're laughing. <laughs> no, you're laughing. You stop it. They did not trust each other at all. No. no. And no. also, if you're just seeing that, you're like, how... Non-inconspicuous is that two two eighteen two, year olds jammed in. Just evil looking teenagers, uh, just all like, oh, oh, Mister Simmerlin here, are you your fetbits? Whoa, yeah, good, <laughs> you got him, got him. <laughs> well, after reaching Bobby's mother Flora, because Bobby's father wasn't home, Nathan said this rapidly and clearly in a tone that was later described as educated. This is. Mr. Johnson. <laughs> nailing it. Your boy's been kidnapped. You're nailing it. Dude, that was so fucking good, dude. Okay, wait. Hold, shut up. Just try to get <laughs> We have him, and you need not worry. He is safe. But don't try to trace his call. Nailing it. Don't try to trace his call. We must have money. We must have money. We will let you know tomorrow what we want. Yep. Oh, thank you, fucking yeah, I'm nailing this fucking got your fucking. All right, we're kidnappers. We mean business, big business. Now, if you fuse us, what we want, or try to report us to the police, we will kill the boy. Boom! She has no idea we already killed the boy. Shut up! Shut up! You guys ever watched home movies? They remind me of Walter of and course. Perry. Like yes. they were like Walter and Perry, the two boys who love each other too much. Well, they then hung up the phone and went back to Nathan Leopold's home to have a celebratory drink. There, they ran into Nathan's father, who praised Richard Loeb for being, and I quote, an excellent influence on his son. Oh, you uh, wouldn't believe it, Daddy. He influenced all over my lower back last night. Fantastic. <laughs> I'll have some fun with it. But when Nathan was driving Richard back home later that night, they realized they'd forgotten to get rid of the actual murder weapon, the oh my chisel. Oh, okay. so. Master criminal Richard Loeb simply tossed it from the window, thinking no one would see. He's absolutely brilliant. Richard Loeb, this is the thing. It's all about the quote-unquote perfect crime, and then all the planning goes out the fucking window. That's the worst thing that they could have done. Everything I mean, other falls than everything else. So yeah. quickly, because it really shows that they had no real-world experience, obviously, in murder. Yeah. They did not know what to do. But Which shows how arrogant they were as well. Deeply arrogant. And it's also that idea of the he's the, the what's the, the text thing with the shrug? Mm-hmm. Like he's literally he's doing yeah. that with all these because it really is like he maybe is sort of borrowing Nathan's viewpoint of yeah. like, you know what, maybe we are Uber Menches, so what we'll do, it'll all work out. Yeah. It'll just it'll work out. out. Yeah. yeah. No, in this they were wrong. A night watchman named Bernie Hunt heard the clink of the chisel hit the sidewalk, and after he picked up the blood-stained implement, mm. he saw that it had been thrown from a distinctive red Willis Knight sports car 
with nickel bumpers. It was the only one that had a license plate that says brown me. <laughs> which was incredible. I, 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 yeah. So if you got that, if that's on your register. Yeah, have fun, sure. However, there was still one gigantic piece of evidence to take care of the next day, and that was the rental car where the murder actually took place. Yeah. The next morning, the Leopold family chauffeur, Sven, found Nathan and Richard scrubbing a mysterious red substance from the inside of the vehicle. It seems to be have some fault of some the, the out here. There, I'm sorry. Yeah. There what seems you, you, to be some form of exploding. <laughs> this guy, what do you think, Sven? What do you think that is? <laughs> is that, I have yours or some kind of <laughs> exploding cherry pie in here. Oh, yeah. It, it, it was a cherry pie. Yeah. Who knows? What, what could that be? Well, thinking quickly, Richard claimed that they'd simply spilled wine. Like a lot wine. of wine. And you know how you always do when you're driving. So best yeah. case scenario, they're just hammered while driving. Okay. <laughs> well, Nathan said that he'd appreciate it if Sven didn't mention it to his parents because they'd been doing a bit of bootlegging. And this is prohibition. So it's, you know, a couple of kids sowing some wild oats, doing some bootlegging, glass of wine or a bottle of wine breaks. It's not the most implausible thing. Yeah, I remember when my father dropped his clog in the flirt <laughs> and we went on into the flirt to look right. for his fl- his clog and it is very difficult to be in the flirt. Are you allowed to talk to me, Sven? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. And so Sven England kept his trap shut for the time being. Mm. Eventually, Sven England would talk a lot and it would not be good. Uh-oh. Around the same time, the ransom note arrived at the Franks home claiming that Bobby was indeed still alive. The note demanded $10,000 in old bills delivered in a cigar box wrapped in white paper and sealed with wax. And if you do read the actual letter, it's the term and hence Mm. was used in both of the letters oh, and, no. it, and, and, and it was Sad. used uh, like and it really is uh it's very distinctive and then when you mm-hmm. look at it in the john benet ramsey ransom note too you look at it and you're like that's that's fucking weird because mm-hmm. who i never i don't use the word and hence do you yeah. use, do you use and hence uh, mm-hmm. sometimes if it's a if it's appropriate yeah, yeah, yeah but i use it sarcastically it's mostly like and hence and then i tip shit big <laughs> you know i say it alone to a toilet yeah. and I, like saying, I, I like saying and hence but i think i just just like saying and hence because of the John Bonet Ramsey note, and I know that that's a big deal. That's a big is part that, of it. That yeah. is why. Well, you yeah. like it that much, huh? Hmm. Well, is, I mean, that, I like- is that what you're doing? The ta- is that what you want to cover your onk up with? Is the tattoo of the John Bonet Ramsey <laughs> Ransom hence, note? I already covered it up with my fucking sick ass Castlevania tattoo, which I got done by fucking Tammy B out at Night Owl uh, Tattoo over in uh, fucking uh, Northampton, Massachusetts. Go check them out. They're fucking I get sick. Up. I get up. All right. Yeah. Very cool. Very well, the letter also warned that if the kidnappers' instructions weren't followed to the letter, the boy would die. If they did what they were told, though, Bobby would be returned within six hours of payment. But neither Leopold and Loeb nor the Franks knew at this time, however, was that Bobby's body had already been found. Oh, dang. A Polish pump worker named Tony Minky had easily spotted a foot poking out from the drainage pipe in the early hours of the morn. Look at that, a Polish hero. Hey, man, it happens. Wow. And you, of course, discovered the naked body of Bobby Franks. And after calling the police and pulling the body out of the pipe with the help of a few other men, Minky and the others searched the area for the boy's clothes. But what they found was something else entirely. Just a few feet from the drainage pipe, another pump worker named Paul Korf 
found a pair of expensive and distinctive eyeglasses with tortoiseshell frames, which were assumed to belong to the victim. But the glasses didn't belong to Bobby Franks. Rather, they belonged to Richard Loeb. And it's there that we'll pick back up for part two of our three-part series. This oh is one of those stories. I truly. forgot my glasses. And my glasses. <laughs> oh, my glasses. <laughs> this yeah. is one of those wow. stories that is true crime history for a reason. Because mm -hmm. the process of the investigation will go and then it's going to be repeated throughout history. This mm -hmm. is becomes in the, the epitome mm. of an example of a celebrity crime trial. Yeah, that it comes huge. You got like some of the biggest names in 20th century history will be there. Like, you know, like somebody like Clarence Darrow, who's got he's going to be it's it's interesting. It, it, you'll see that it really it works its way into history. And that's Very why interesting. This, it's, you know, it's yeah. you got to be careful what your fantasies lead you to. Indeed. Well, absolutely. Leopold and Loeb, two people who I'm excited to hear come to justice. Come to justice. Mm -hmm. um, and we are coming. To Nashville. Yes. June 18th. Woo. We're going to be there. The Ryman Auditorium. Can't All wait. of LPN is going to be there. The Jamboree is going to be rocking. You, If you can't be there, we only got about like 100 tickets left. But yeah. please come buy tickets to be put your butt in the seat yeah. in person. Because, again, I have no clue how um, if we're going to do this again or when we're going to do this Absolutely. again. Absolutely. Um, and if no, this is every single I mean, this is every single LPN show doing their own segment. Like, yeah. Yeah, of course, we'll be there. We'll be hosting. We'll do our se our segment as well. But this is mostly an LPN focused show where Absolutely. everyone's going to be doing their own thing. No dogs in space. We got a fucking super cool bit written. Can't wait to perform live. No dogs in space live for the very first time. It's going to be so fucking great. Can't awesome. wait. It's we got awesome. a live band that's going to be we actually have a live band that's going to be playing the music for it. It's going to be the so urban fucking cool. pioneers, man. I'm so excited. Yeah. That's your family, too, which is yeah, really my cool family. to have yeah. them there. Like, yeah. it's going to be so cool. But if you can't make it in person, go to momenthouse.com slash LPOTL and you can buy a live stream ticket to watch it from the nudity of your own home. Absolutely. And it'd be great, man. Because again, I don't know if we're going to do this again. So We can't oh, when? wait. And my only word of advice, have your first beer at the start of the show. Yep. And then by the end of it, you'll have five or six in you and you'll be ready to rock and roll. No need to pre-party because it's going to be about three hours long. It's a big, yeah. so, big And we want you to show. remember. And Top Hat will be there and Page 7 will be there. You'll see how all of the strange looking bodies that make up our network. And then we got last comic book on the left. We're selling that. You get to go and order it from Z2 Comics. Yeah, it's, so like it, it's absolutely gorgeous looking through it. There's so it's much beautiful. work and time and love went into this book. And so I hope you guys like it. Mm -hmm. And uh, is that it? Yeah, basically. And, and Spring just, Hill Jack's got a new, uh, new, they blend. Have a, a new blend. I got a new, it's kind of, he said, to, he corrected me because I said it was a lighter roast and it's not. It's just, it feels lighter. Same beans, same roast. There we go. With a little bit of a different technique, but equally as delicious. I love mm. me some for Spring Hill Jack. I had it this morning, and I fucking, I just, just so nice as shit. Mm. Absolutely. It have, really is, especially because I go down there, and again, I go, and hence. And then I just, I build <laughs> up the tension for myself, and I just back up the truck. and go, beep, 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 mm -hmm. from across Daddy's, the room, yep. and then I land her. Then yeah. I shit. That's yep, nice. Gotta evacuate some waste there. All right, everyone. Well, thank you so much for listening. Hail yourselves. Hail Satan. Yogin. Magustulations, everybody. Yeah, man. Magustulations all around for all the children in the world. Absolutely. If you see your second cousin walking around, go hang out. Have a nice time together. Don't, Don't kill him. Don't kill him. Don't yeah. kill him. Unless they're a fucking... Don't kill them. Don't. No, even then. Because it's mutually... You're going to get caught, especially yeah. nowadays. That's why we got to frame them for murder. Of themselves. Maybe. For suicide. We'll get to no. part two. Let's get to part two. <laughs> this show is made possible by listeners like you. 
Thanks to our ad sponsors. You can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. Yeah.